0: Welcome to the concluding part two of my conversation with Ben Sawyer, ex-Bomb Disposal Officer and Change Manager at Oxford University Press. For those who haven't heard it, I beseech you to go listen to part one of this conversation where we explore Ben's experience as a military leader in Northern Ireland, first cutting his teeth in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in some of the most tense situations you can possibly imagine in in this part of the conversation which you're about to hear Ben tells us how he's taken those experiences uh, as a leader in the military and now is applying them as a change manager in in his role at oxford university press some some brilliant insights uh, around you know, innovation around agility about uh, about leading people uh, he gets very humble uh, and talks about some of uh, the the places where he, uh, he he failed as the, uh, uh, as a leader, very powerful stuff. Without further ado, I give you part two. And this brings us to where to to your life now, with, with as you say, with children and working for the Oxford University Press. Yes, the biggest op-
1: university press in the world. Certainly, yes. Wow. Yeah. So I think we. I think OUP has people in about I think it's about 52 countries or so Um, so yeah very widely spread um, the big areas are for it are so they've got academic publishing which does a lot of journals and a lot of printing of um, books for of academic interest then we've got the education division who are looking at supporting schools um, within the school curriculum so everything so a lot of uh, kids in the UK. Will have learned to read through um, English, uh, Oxford Reading the Tree through Biff and Chip. And a lot of maths like New Becomes, so again, that's all AEP. And then the other, and then we've also got people doing the same sort of things in South Africa, Kenya, Australia, China, Pakistan, India. So all catering to local schools markets. And then we have the English language teaching. And again, Oxford uh, University Press is one biggest. Um, ELT in terms of teaching or English, English training, uh, providers, uh, well, publishers, and they have also teamed up now with the university for the Oxford Test of English, and it's so again they, they sell um, ELTs for all the way to so massive in Spain, in Italy, Poland, and China. So again, all around the world. Yeah, and that was in, down in Central and South America as well.
0: And of course, the <coughs> Oxford English. Picture. Yes, probably the most iconic.
1: <laughs> absolutely, yes.
0: Publication. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which uh, our cameraman and I were trying to read in the foyer well, yeah, <laughs> reception.
2: Yeah. It's oh, the impressive yeah. Tomes yes. Impressive tome. the whole thing. Although I think it's, it's 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 rarely used now as a printed tome. It's most most of the auction Dictionary used now is it is all online because it's so vast. And it's used a lot now as well for data. So I think on Google, if you type in for words, you can get the Oxford definition of the word. And so there's a lot of interaction with technology of how they use the, the data sets.
1: Yeah.
2: And also in the humanities, because it's the OED, it's a history of the English language. So it takes a lot of the words in there aren't really common uses anymore, but also it's how words evolve and when when is it first used? How has its use changed across history? So I mean, it's really interesting if you can get it on the, on the website where you can actually look at certain words and see examples of use through the, over the hundreds of years.
0: Yeah. And uh, and you gave me a, a, a tour. Yes. Around the building. Yes. Previously. Yeah, yeah
2: through the, yeah. seeing some of the entry cards, Yeah. 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 And, and one and, of the
0: oldest uh, oldest companies in the world.
1: Um,
2: yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's been publishing I think for four hundred over four hundred years. Um,
1: yeah, certainly in, up in there, some
2: in some way, in some way or same yeah. way or the other yes. yeah.
0: and you're a change change
2: agent change so i'm, agent. I'm a cha- so i'm a change manager change manager here. Yeah. so i i guess involved a lot in but also i guess it's i do some managing individual changes, but most of what I do is about how do we manage and lead change across the press i guess but it's everything from uh, developing courses on the psychology of change for our management and leadership courses through to you know, coaching and mentoring people, to uh, designing ways of working for change managers and advising on how do you run change impact sessions and things like that.
0: Right.
2: So it's more about looking at how we change rather than individual changes. And,
0: and what have you taken from your time in the army and applied as a change manager
2: Ooh. I think the one of the biggest things is, is incremental, it's the need for incremental change. I think there's a what what we were quite good at, especially within the bomb social teams, was changing very quickly and in, we, not incrementally, so it's we didn't have the power to and we didn't have the resources to say this wheelbarrow is rubbish, we want a new one and go and buy the new one because that's going for the procurement chain and that can take years and years and years it's more about with okay so this is the this is the wheelbarrow this is the robot we've got what can we do with it how can we make it better and it's kind of then it's the little tweaks on it and it's everything too and it's um how can we so when we get onto a target so in northern ireland there was a so the the irish uh, republican uh, terrorists they were more about destroying property and causing um they tended although they tended they did a lot of murdering individuals they didn't tend to use car bombs for mass casualties sometimes they, i mean they, some of them times by mistake sometimes deliberately they did do uh, they did kill lots of people with car bombs but there was a tendency to try and disrupt so i blowing up high streets so think like the manchester bombing where they put a car bomb out, and then they're phoned for a warning, so the police can evacuate. Okay. So the bomb disposal teams—they had um, a robot that could get up there and disrupt the disrupt the device explosively. So it still creates a lot of damage, but not nearly as much damage as a big car bomb. But it's so it's then a race. It's kind of you've got you've got the warning that there's a the device there. So how quickly can you get there and disrupt it? Whereas the the terrorists they know they know where you're base and they know how long it takes to drive there and they want to give enough time to evacuate people, but they don't want to give you time to actually get there and disrupted. So it's how we, can you shave kind of half a second here off, half a second there. So we would practice kind of our, things like our arrival drills. So when we arrive at the target, how quickly can we get the the robot off the vehicle, load it up down the road and shooting the target? And we practice that time and time again and we practice it in different weather conditions as well so we kind of well do that do do our procedures work in the rain what happens if the number two jumps off and slips and twists his ankle who's going to replace who's going to replace him who's going to do all his parts in the process so we're concentrating and we train again and again and again it's again It's what can you do to shave a second off here a second off there or what can you do to make it more certain that you're not going to slip or you're not going to fumble something or and it's it's always seeking those marginal gains of because by the time you've kind of got a second here, a second there, a bit of certainty there actually that all adds up it's right. all cumulative, and I think we we were very good at making those those marginal gains and also constantly seeking to after every mission coming back and actually talking about well what what could we have done better there so it's all there was really was a culture of we've always got to be better, we've always got to do it better and constantly reviewing what we did and learning from it.
0: Okay. And I get, yeah. And
2: whereas I think in I think within business organisations it can be a lot more difficult to do that because it's that time factor. It's, you've got that you don't have the often have the time to train or to review things. It's you've done something operationally part of your job. And then you're on to the next thing. You don't have the capacity to review and does it make things better? And also often there's that other areas where there's not that feeling of we don't own this process, so we follow it, but we can't make it better because we're not empowered to do that. We don't have, it's not for us to do that. So there is, there's that feeling of we, we don't have the capacity to do it, we don't, have permission to do it, and maybe we don't have the knowledge or tools to do it. Whereas I think within the bomb disposal teams, it's very much, we owned the way our team work. We had the capacity to do it most of the time, because if you're not out on a device, you're training and preparing for a device. Um, there was some day-to-day stuff that you need to get into there, but there was always time for training and making things better. And we had I guess we didn't.
0: Well, that's a key phrase. There was always time for training and making things better. Yes. And how many kind of corporate teams could say that?
2: Yeah, yeah and a bit, some of it was we made time for it. Yeah. Uh, but some of it is actually our job was to train and make it better. And then the tools. Yeah, and then there's another important. Yes.
0: Our job was to train and make it better. Like yes. How many people would say yeah. that was true of their role?
2: I think there was also that element of. Capacity, So it's, I mean, if you have someone working in an operational team and their job is taken up, 100% of their job is business as usual, when's their time to actually improve their job or improve themselves? And you, I mean, you see this with, uh, or even to actually enact change. So I think the Boston Consulting Group, the BCG now, they have an equation where they look at how likely projects and change um, change projects are to succeed. And one of the bits in the equation is effort. And it's basically how much effort do people taking part in the change and need to do on top of their business as usual role? And if it's more than about 10%, then it starts actually really adversely affecting the likelihood of success. And you see that some of the more, I think, some of the organisations more adept at change, it's because people change is part of their job. So if they've got a BAU role doing whatever, a business as usual role doing something, that may be 70, percent of their time. And then 20% of their time is actually given over to it's it's that free time where they've got well, it's not free, it's taken up, but it's continuous improvement or taking part in change projects or self-improvement or it, it's time where they've got that capacity to do other things rather than actually improving something or taking part change has to be something that you do after your job finishes at five, you're in until six doing it or actually your, your lunch or, hour is doing yeah. it or something like that.
0: Or when the next change project <clears throat> comes along, I suppose. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's
0: got so bad that yes. yeah, mm-hmm. we need to do
2: something dressed And then the other one is that feeling of, it's that permission. It's within our team, we we owned our procedures, we have a vested interest in doing it. So absolutely, we, we wouldn't go and seek permission to go and do something and change the way we work. It would just, just well, you
0: can do it, yeah, and even your story about the wheelbarrow is that you also had that that spirit of well we will make some change here. we're oh, not yeah. going to wait for procurement and that reminds me of the, the guests we've had who've talked a lot about lean and zen within lean mm. and one of the principles there is we, we we change what we have without potentially without any change <coughs> in the technology without any money, we're just simply going to make a change with what we've got at
2: hand mm. as the yeah.
0: key principle
2: so I mean. A nice example, so on the, the wheelbarrow carries um, disruptors. So these are, disru- a disruptor is kind of a metal tube with a small explosive charge at the back and it fires a uh, water. And it, the idea is it tears apart the the time power unit of the IED. It tears it apart and it doesn't function. So we'd have a couple of those mounted on the wheelbarrow. And it's really hard, if you've got a camera that sits above the, the two weapons, but it's really difficult to judge distance, and obviously you don't want to you don't want to nudge the device or the car or whatever you're shooting at. But you don't want to do too far. If you wanted to stand off about two inches. Now the American route is they have they started putting laser laser rangefinders on there, which that sucks in rain and stuff like that. And it's expensive. We would have on the end of each weapon a bit of gaffer tape that stuck out with a, another bit of gaffer tape sticking up. And when the gaffer tape flexed a bit, you knew that the end of the weapon was two inches from what you wanted to shoot at. It's cheap, it works, it works in the rain. And uh, it, it was perfect. So, I mean, that's not something that we, we developed our team. That's just something that I, someone developed in, in, uh, in Northern Ireland, a way of doing it, and it's, it's stuck. and it's So, again, it's one of these things that a team would have thought that up and then they would have told the other teams and then it spread and then it became part of our recipes and it became taught in our schools and there were lots of things like how we in Northern Ireland the way you adapt the wheel the wheelbarrow to shoot at bombs underneath the cars so under vehicle IEDs are they were one of the common devices in Northern Ireland so it's how do you configure the wheelbarrow to shoot it and bearing in mind the wheelbarrow is quite big so there's a way of basically there's a knowledge way that someone had worked out on one of the teams Again, they'd spread the knowledge, and then it come to be what we taught at the schools about how a way to rig up using broom handles, gaffer tape, and extended cables, and that you could then basically gaffer tape onto the front end of the wheelbarrow so you could shoot the device. And it just—it was that kind of attitude of always looking to what can we do, how can we do this better, what can we improvise that would work better than this.
0: Yeah, what can we do within our constraints? That's such a powerful Absolutely, question,
2: yeah.
1: isn't it? And-
0: Married to a, an environment or a culture where you've got the time to ask yourself that question yes. and do something about yeah. it. Yeah,
1: right? you have got
2: the capacity to do it, and also you, the willingness to get out and test it, no matter what the weather is, and and to keep on keep on experimenting when it doesn't work. Kind of well, why didn't it work? Yeah. What what's what was good about it? What wasn't so good about it? So, do you
0: see as part of your role in is is finding ways to create that environment in teams?
2: Um. So, sometimes, yes. So there's, so there are some teams here that I've been working with on how can they start using um, some elements of lean, um, things like visual management, and how can they do stand-ups a bit better, and how can they start kind of cap- using visual management to capture their problems. Visual management,
0: what's that? So, like, I mean, about that?
2: Um, so it's this idea that rather than... It, it's trying to make your reports and returns of what you're doing within your team trying to make it visual in the way it's presented so it it makes it easier to see patterns and see if there's something going wrong so it could be anything from a graph to um the, the, the way I don't know, the, the way you track your plan on the, on the board so it's basically trying it's trying to make information available visually
1: yeah
0: okay. So that's the types of activities you get involved with the the teams you
2: work with here. Yes, and, and, uh, and it, it and it's it's very it's, it's quite varied. So it, it's it's all very different for different teams. Yeah, I think that's I think that's one of the things that we I did lack in the army was the tools to do what we were doing better. So what we I think we were quite naive in our ways of approaching. So there's a lot of stuff you a lot of tools you can use from Lean for uh, measuring process flows and actually looking for where you've got lockages and, and, we, and bringing theory constraints with bottlenecks and things. And there's some of we we kind of grasped instinctively. But I can't help but think that actually we could have done a better job if we'd had a better awareness of these tools. Right. Um, and these other te- these other techniques that are out there in industry that we weren't really aware of. So we we were really chasing the idea of we need to continue to be what we're doing. Actually, seconds count, but we weren't aware of kind of the more theoretical concepts of lean and marginal gains and things like that. So it's
0: right. But it seems to me that that that's in some sense is much more important than. A particular oh, I th- I th- oh
2: yeah, absolutely. I think that the mind, the mindset is the mindset and the capacity is the, are the most critical things. Um I just think we could have been, we could have made maybe better gains if we'd had other tools to apply to it yeah, but, but the important a, thing is the mindset
0: but that's that's a very important point isn't it because i do, do find a lot of my work with organizations is yeah. you can you can teach some of the lean theory you can mm. expose people to these tools and, and ways of thinking about improving but they haven't got the time ta- you know what yes you said, the, the the capacity to do the training and the and the continuous improvement and it's all for now yeah for now,
2: right? and, yeah and also the it's the It's that mindset that it's this is something. This is an optional thing. This is something you you need to do. It needs to be part of you. You can't just have a process that everyone follows and then that's it. That's the process you're going to follow for the next twenty years.
0: Yeah, but I suppose that's the other the 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 interesting aspect to the situations you were in in the army is that there was such a compelling need Mm. to improve. We may save lives here. uh, is how do you recreate that in in,
2: but it's all, in the yeah. context? But it's all I mean the so the terrorists were very and the insurgents were very good at iterative development as well. So, for example, so um, take um, Afghanistan. So they started initially the first um, victim-operated IEDs that we saw there were pressure blades. So it's mostly two old rusty saw blades held apart by a couple of blocks of wood, so they're held parallel apart by a couple of blocks of wood, a wire to each, wrap the whole thing in rubber and bury it under the ground so that when someone treads on it, the two bits of the saw blade meet and the current can flow and the device functions. So we start using metal detectors. So the person, at the leader of the patrol, has a metal detector sweep over the area and that detects the saw blades. They can then either go around it or call on a bomb disposal team to deal with it. So then the Taliban say, well, okay, they're detecting all these metal ones. What can we do to use that they won't detect? So they start using devices that use um, less metal that we can detect, So, um, or using um, graphite from batteries, or what, all sorts of things they find in conductors that wouldn't be detected by metal detectors. So they started using those. So we then started using ground penetration radar. Uh, which again, would find those again. So then they said, "Well, they're finding those devices." They started using, rather than pressure plates, they started using command wires. So they'd have someone watching on the end of a, on the end of a wire with a battery. So we then started, and it's that it's that constant iterations of they do something, we counter it. They do something to counter it, and and that happens time and time again through um, every every campaign, and it it happens through. I mean, major warfare as well. You 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 see what happens with the development of tanks in the Second World War, how that um, the armor versus the, the size of the weapon develops. Again, it's all is that continuous improvement of to react to what the other side are doing. Right,
0: right. Um, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, that's a, that's a. It's not just that you're saving lives; it's that your const- your enemy's constantly iterating around
2: you. Yeah, and you've the, the so um, what was his name? Uh, Denning, I think his name was. Mm. Um, so he was a an American fighter pilot in Korea, I think it was, and he he looked at why um, often American fighter pilots were beating enemy um, um, uh, Chinese fighter pilots, despite the American being an inferior aircraft at times and he concluded it was um, decision-making. And he developed this thing called the OODA loop. OODA. OODA. So, and it's basically it's this idea that you observe what um, your opponent is doing, you orientate it according to what you're doing, you decide what you want to do, and then you take action. And the idea is that your opponent will also be following that, that loop. And then there's a term in the military, can you get inside your opposition's OODA loop? So can you make, if you can make your OODA loop smaller than their OODA loop, it means that by the time they're trying to decide what to do, you've already taken action. So their observations and orientation is out of date. Mm. So they're then deciding what to do on out of date information. And so OODA loop now, I've, I've seen this talk as well, now it's, um, i think some businesses have taken it up so it's that idea of how can you get this inside the OODA loop of your competition working at government level as well so it's not so it's designed for fighter pilots but it works across uh, military situations and across all sorts of situations um it's it's basically can you can you gather information analyze it decide a course of action and take the action faster than whoever you're trying to compete against can okay so it's was, it was constantly that: is can we get inside the OODA Loop for Al Qaeda or the Taliban or whoever we're, um, the, the opposition was?
0: Yeah, that's a very powerful idea. And what mm-hmm. just brings to mind is the, the stats on Amazon and how quickly they're up—you know—they're updating their oh, yeah. multiple times a second. Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you've, got, you've got to fight pretty hard to get inside their OODA Loop. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: yes. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I'm guessing the world of university press isn't quite as fast as that, but still. It's still—it's getting ideas. there. I
2: mean, especially um, education technology, um, because it's so—and um, people like Google and Amazon are getting into the field of education. So there is really is an awareness that we do need to move faster. We do need to be able to bring products to market much faster. Because if we don't, then these tech, big tech companies, and increasingly small kind of tech startups—there are people out there with great ideas. I think where we differ is that we have the, we've got the content and I think um, things like that for English language teaching and for maths and things like that, the content is some of the best in the world. Whereas someone like Google may have better platforms, it's how then do you, you mix up with them? And there are, there are various partnerships that OUP are in with uh, technology companies and there's a lot of work with OUP developing its own stuff as well.
0: Yeah. There's yeah, a
2: big bigger drive towards digital as a way forward.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating to see who, who wins these <laughs> awards over the yeah, coming years.
2: Uh, well, d- and it's it doesn't necessarily have to be I, I think especially for education, it's 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 not necessarily us or them. There's a lot of there's a lot of collaboration, there's a lot yeah. of working together. And I maybe. guess
0: there's more willingness to do that in the realm of education, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Um I thought I thought we'd touch on um, this this chapter you've written in a book. So you're yes. also an author now, presumably. It seems to be published author. Uh, parad- paradox uh, and power in caring leadership, uh, and I've read the chapter that you've written with your wife. Yes, uh, and this uh, this was fascinating to me. This idea that the caring leader. And, and for that to come from a military context. Um, yes. So let's talk a little bit about that idea of the caring leader.
2: Um, well, I guess it's my, my wife. Uh, she's a classicist, uh, especially, especially in the ancient Greek side of things. And we'd been, we were approaching kind of what's the difference between uh, military leadership now and then. And so she was looking at kind of Homeric um writing, so uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad, and how, how does care, how does a leader in those days express their care, and how did they care for their soldiers and their, their people, whereas I was comparing it for, well, like how does, in the military, how do you care for your soldiers, and it's, I mean, in the army it's always that element of, it, it's, and through your first, your year at Sandhurst, it's always drawn into the soldier, your first job as an officer is to look after your soldiers, um, so things like the motto at Sanders and it has been since nineteen forty seven i think is uh, serve to lead and even on the cap badge on you you wear on your your berry
0: servant leadership before it was absolutely yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly yes and it's and it it's that element of you you put your soldiers first and everything else will follow and it it, it can show its way in various ways, so things like if you're um off the regiments out in the field on operations or training. Um, if everyone's queuing to eat, then the soldiers eat first and then the and, uh, non-commissioned officers, then the officers. So the officers eat last. And it's pretty much you eat in kind of reverse rank order. And it's this idea that if you run out of food or run out of time to eat, then well, it's more important the soldiers get fed than the officers. And there's we also go on to talk about how in some ways it can be, easier to care for your soldiers in the army than it may be for a leader in a civilian organisation to care for their workers, because of the nature of the relationship. And I think it's because the army is more of a way of life. So, for example, all your all your single soldiers, if you so commanding a, um, if you've got a platoon of soldiers, all the single soldiers will live in accommodation together, in flats together, or sometimes it used to be in shared rooms. Um, the married soldiers all live off on an estate, all the soldiers together and all the officers together. When you have um, events, you have, um, is often with wives and kids there. And you have a, a vested interest in making sure what's kind of, uh, you, you'd have soldiers coming to you with problems about which school their kids got into or housing problems or financial problems. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in most civilian organisations, you wouldn't, someone wouldn't come to their manager with problems about which school their kid has got into, or whether they've got financial issues because they've got, I mean, they've got too many things on high purchase or something like that. So I think the 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 role of the leader in the army is much wider and spreads across much more of the their soldier life than it would be for a normal relationship between a manager and an employee in most civilian
1: organizations
2: right right so i i i I mean i see from from many civilian organizations and experience now that can go people can work together for years before they and never have actually met their colleagues wives or kids or husbands and kids and they're basically their their families whereas in the army i'd be really surprised if you managed to get more than a few months without meeting kind of the the soldier's yeah. family,
0: and it certainly isn't true that you know, probably any any manager in a corporation to have been through eleven months of training where the where the principal motto was about caring for your mm. for your staff, yeah. and we see it in the rates of dissatisfaction in the workplace yeah. and how much it's correlated yeah. correlated to to the boss's behaviour.
2: And you, you still, I mean, don't get it wrong, you still get dissatisfaction. So that they have the uh, the um, army attitude surveys, I think they're called. Um, every every couple of years, and dissatisfaction is still there, however, it tends to be f- with i mean it's, it's the same things you find in other places kind of the pay the stability of life um, it's often to do with opportunities available or and a lot of it reflects on the senior leadership as opposed to so people still find a lot of the senior leaders quite remote, but I think leadership at the more junior level, which more intimate i think is is very good mm and you, don't get me wrong, you still get very good senior leaders, and it, I think it's just, it's often the perception of it. And you often, you, you get senior leaders who are very, they're very aware that they need to be seen. So you'll often find that someone who, someone who could be in charge of a division, so kind of tens of thousands of soldiers, and deployed across multiple countries. So you, it'd be very easy for them to be shut up in their office and ops room, kind of planning things and making decisions. But they'll still have time. They'll have kind of a couple of days a week when they're out on the road seeing people and being seen, mm. um, because it's that it's that um, kind of inspirational leadership thing. And right. you see, I mean, you see. I, so when I was in Baghdad, uh, Stanley Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal, was my my boss's boss, and so he was in charge of operations sort of tens of thousands of soldiers across Iraq and Afghanistan. But he still made time when he visited our camp to come in for dinner and sit down at the table and chat to people. And um, I mean, the fact that I can, I can still remember when he sat down at the table with me and a, a bunch of my friends uh, for midnight dinner one night. And I can still remember kind of most of the conversation kind of ten years later. Um, and it was kind of, he was that kind of inspirational type of person. Right. And making bulls and making time to actually get out there and be seen and lead.
0: And spend time,
2: really yes, spend time with absolutely, people in a yeah. way
0: that, yeah, I think it's certainly true. Most corporate CEOs, for example, wouldn't, in general, invest that much time. In,
2: mm. But I think there's also that
0: with their staff.
2: And the other thing I think in the military that is that leadership is you, you, you don't finish you don't finish at Sandhurst and your training is done. Um, your leadership training, you 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 finish your your year of training there, and then you've got. Um, various other formal weeks that you need to go and do where it's more reflection and maybe going to leadership more depth. You have a mentor a coaching relationship, a mentoring coaching relationship with other with other leaders within your regiment. You then go back on formal courses as a captain, then as a major, and then as a colonel, and then even I mean even generals go back and they will go back to the Army School of Leadership and have more time for reflection and coaching on their leadership. And these are people who are taking over kind of organizations of tens of thousands of people, and they're still going off for more leadership training.
0: Right. So, that theme of making time <coughs> for continuous improvement of training is
2: oh, uh, th- throughout. throughout. And, it, and it's seen cool. as le- leadership is your, as an officer, leadership is your trade. Um, you're a leader first and foremost, and everything else second. Whereas, how many times in a business organization? So, one, um, I was chatting to a guy who's, um, he works for a Formula One company. And said so most of the middle and middle, middle management there are, and senior management are engineers. And they are, they've been promoted to be a middle manager because they're a great engineer. And then, and then everyone's unhappy because they're a crap manager, and they're unhappy because they're not doing engineering anymore. So, basically, Everyone's upset because they don't really see leadership as a trade in its own right. They haven't brought in a manager; they've, they've kind of promoted this engineer. Yes. And I think that's quite common throughout the business world, where your people management and leadership—that's not—it's not seen as a trade. It's not seen as something your primary function. It's something that great. You've been good at. You've been a great engineer. Let's make. Let's promote you to be a manager. Yeah. Rather than you're great engineer, let's you make you a more senior engineer. Yes, and let's exactly. actually bring in professional managers who they they know a bit about engineering, but they are they've had a lot of training in management and leadership. well, and, and
0: crucially leadership. I mean, yes. and that ability to inspire and to look after and to serve yeah. in that way. I mean, those are really important ideas. Yeah. And
2: obviously, as a leader, you do need to have a, an element of you do need to know your business technically as well. But there was always that emphasis that your role first and foremost is leadership, and you have te- you've got to know enough technically to make decisions and to inform stuff. But you've got technical experts to inform to help out as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's such an important point, and and even in the way that we see now a lot of sort of trust in corporations, and and arguably I think you can make the case. that Contribute to a wider breakdown and polarisation in society is this lack of leadership within corporati- corporations and this lack of care for employees yes. as, as being something we've kind of, we've sort of lost somehow as, a, as an ethical imperative within the corporate world. And we're starting to see this shift with the uh, the Business Roundtable in in the US and Jamie Dimon yes. championing that idea that we need to start putting employees yes. at the top of the stakeholder list rather than at the bottom and. So it is starting to shift, but it's it seems like the, the Army's always had this, right? And yes. It's, it's something I think, we can start to now draw on as but part inspiration. Of our,
2: part of our article is talking about moral injury. And so moral injury was a concept, of really, the term was keyed by a, a guy called um, Jonathan Shea. So he was a psychologist working with um, Vietnam veterans. And he was treating PTSD, but he realized that so PTSD is a post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's kind of a, a fear-driven reaction. So it's a, a mental reaction to a, a mental injury that's caused by a traumatic event uh, and largely fear-based. And it's but he's realized that there was something that was missing there because there were people who were coming back with PTSD type symptoms but hadn't necessarily been exposed to that sort of traumatic event. So he coined this term uh, moral injury and it 's basically this idea that it's a breach of your what you hold to be fundamentally and morally correct and often a bre- often a bit of breach of trust and it's kind of it's that um, how to put it so it's it can lead to feelings of guilt um, or anger and so it can lead to all sorts of other PTSD type symptoms but it's not from a the same thing as ptsd it's not the same event that's caused it and but often they go hand in hand yeah. so often you're finding that actually it's the people who are the hardest to treat with those who had ptsd but with also some more some element of moral injury in there and i think the moral injury has been more and more talked about um, within psychology and looked at more across because i think there's especially within the recent wars like iraq and afghanistan where you're fighting for sometimes for um morally ambiguous reasons, uh or sometimes the wrong reasons, or sometimes um fighting for something where there's no real end in sight. There's nothing you can't say with one we can go home. It's not like kind of the, the second war where we you defeat uh Nazism and then it's great everyone goes home. It's not like that. It's kind of you, you, we kind of we finish in Afghanistan and we're back and Something well, actually, half the towns that we fought for, and so many British soldiers and American soldiers died for, and they're back in the hands of the Taliban now. So, kind of, why, why were we there? What were we doing? Um, Iraq: How many, how many civilians and military died in Iraq? For how many weapons of mass destruction did we find? Zero, um, and left a country now in uh, tur- turmoil and was bordering a civil war in 2006 and seven. So, you're kind of fighting for these. And morally ambiguous things, and it's it, it's a lot easier to end up with some element of moral injury there because it's it's calling the question what do soldiers hold right and dear. Um, but then we were looking at well, um, and and this uh, so Jonathan Shea, he wrote a very good book called Achilles in Vietnam, so he compares it to what Achilles was going through and the symptoms he displays, and they. He's kind of trying to say that well, Achilles—he didn't have PTSD. He wasn't bothered by the trauma of cutting, hacking someone's leg off, or some of like that. But he did show the, the symptoms of PTSD, and it's actually more about that moral injury because he's—he's he's being kind of betray, betrayed by Agamemnon in what he holds dear. But
0: this—and this is—and this, is, this is going back to Greek legend. Yes. Yes. Where sure. Agamemnon takes his trophy yes. girl that he'd been absolutely given so,
2: and it's I guess the modern equivalent. So my wife was writing, so we've written the article as kind of a conversation between myself and my wife, and um, so she she's a, a doctor of classics, and she um, and she she compares kind of Agamemnon's actions with maybe in a civilian context, modern civilian context, um, a CEO earns a mega bonus but then has to pay a lot of it back in tax so to make up for the tax he's had to pay he takes all his all the other people's bonuses to reimburse from the, across the company to reimburse himself for the tax he's had to pay which is kind of in, similar to what agamemnon did by taking some of the uh, basically a bonus away from uh, achilles because he'd lost his own bonus
0: right okay
2: or part of his own bonus
0: yeah well and we do see that I suppose we see that I can I can see that in the corporate context all the time where people could I can really see how people might experience moral injury based on mm. actions of of senior leaders yes. in business. I mean,
2: and, and Liz calls out another example that she read about within um, within Nestle. So it was um, part of the controversy when they were promoting the use of uh, baby formula. Um, and this case study comes from uh, Pakistan. Where one of the Nestle employees um, ended up resigning because he could see how many babies were dying because they were, Nestle, they basically, they were promoting uh, through doctors that people should use um, formula instead of breast milk. But the water wasn't purified, so babies then getting diarrhoea uh, because of impure water, and whereas breast milk is obviously, clean. actually what's best for the child. Um, but it wasn't best for corporations and um so and obviously that led to a lot of the way of restrictions on how they now sell formula but um in past cases a lot of babies were killed because of the the drive to actually um use formula yeah and so you could you could identify elements of uh, moral injury in this this man who had been selling this this baby formula
0: yeah yeah, and I, and and I think that's a that's a very stark example. But we talk about it a lot about in transformation programs. I think there's a lot of this happens yes. where, where where people feel like maybe their job's gone or mm. or parts of the company have been sacrificed, and yet the leaders at the top keep the bonuses. I mean, yes, I, almost every week you see another corporate example. I mean, I saw it in the, the Wood, Neil Woodford, the hedge fund manager, who took yes it, thirteen million out in bonus whilst all of his investors. Yeah, you know, lose money as part of the fund. I mean, it's -hmm. almost every week. There's another example of a failure of leadership. Yeah, senior corporate firms kind of collapsing
2: and people making off with the money. And uh, yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, Uh, and yeah, you one could, I suppose, make the case that there is simply a lack of focus in developing leaders in the corporate realm.
2: Yes, and,
0: and and giving people space to reflect on. What does a what does a moral leader look like? What do I look like as a yeah. as a moral leader?
2: And what are you there as a leader to do? And
0: what am I there as a leader
1: um, to
2: do? I, mean, I can't um, I can't remember who writes the is it Stephen Covey was it wrote the the forward for Turn the Ship Around, and his definition of leader was kind of a leader is put someone who gets their followers to be the best they can, or kind of yeah. worst that effect. Um, and while I don't necessarily agree with that in the whole, I think it is an element of leadership is to actually it's how can you make the people that you serve be the best they can be yeah so i think yeah that element that element of servant and Uh, having
0: faith in them and and being prepared and and the leader eats last right being able to put my bonus at the back of the Mm. queue when it comes to and Saving the finances of the
2: company so I read a case study I don't know if it still happens but so there there's because uh, I think they've changed ownership but um, was it Whole Foods the um, um, the American supermarket got kind of a quite high-end quite expensive supermarket and um,
0: whole paycheck is it's good yes but
2: they had a I read a case study where they had a system where um, pay was worked out in multiples of kind of the basic pay packet so someone with no management uh, responsibilities or no leadership responsibilities working on the till, kind of, they're on, um, that's the basic pay. And then a manager of the store can't earn more than however many multiples of that. And even the CEO couldn't earn more than, I can't remember how many multiples it was, it was quite a few multiples, but couldn't earn more than a certain number of multiples of the lowest paid person in the organisation so if the ceo wanted a back and great pay rise it gave everyone a pay rise and it worked in those multiples so it actually did, it did mean it you didn't have these runaway situations where you've got ceos who are earning hundreds and hundreds of what the lowest paid person earns and kind of reaching earning in three the first three or four days of the year what most people earn in a year yeah. or what the average person earns in a year. yeah yeah
0: which, which I guess causes problems at all sorts of levels, but surely one of them is that it must be extremely difficult to empathise. Uh, yeah, absolutely. With somebody yes earning a thousand times less than you know, yeah. in Terms of their experience of life and uh, changes in the company, but so, yeah.
2: yeah, and it's. I mean, we 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 hadn't really considered the idea of um, different pay and the increasing, the rise of inequality. Um, but yeah, I think that absolutely could be where you'll see um, elements of moral injury.
0: And this is where I also think it link it does link to the broader societal problems that we're seeing and, and, and the polarisation and this increase of extreme political views at both end of the spectrum. Mm. I do think business has a role in all of this. It's not just about the political realm. Absolutely. I think that the way that businesses can conduct themselves feeds into that. Um, and and it, this is such an important question, I think, for us, is how do we bring leadership back in Yes. Into the corporate world, right?
2: Yeah, and I don't think there's... I mean, there's no right answer. There's probably going to be lots of answers, but it's... I mean, some of it would have to be, what's. what do you reward a CEO for doing? Um, Is it for um, raising the worth of the organisation? Is it for achieving a particular mission? Is it for increasing share price? Um, And it's until you actually... Maybe I think it's when you change what you, what the CEO is there to do and what they're rewarded for doing. Because actually, if you, you compare share prices and CEO pay, even if it's, I mean, I think it's meant to be that they're there to increase share price, or one of their prime reasons, but it's there's no match between what a CEO was paid in the 90s and the rise to what they're paid now compared to the rise in share prices in the 90s. There's, there's no real correlation. And it just seems to be this this runaway assumption that's that's what they're paid.
0: Yes, uh, yes, I think that's I think that starts. I think that's a really useful place to start is how 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 do we reward the yeah. CEO. Maybe maybe the most important. And, but I, I also think this 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 this, this focus on leadership. Seems mm. to me to be
2: a very important one as well, and it's that different emphasis on what leadership is. It's you. I think the the idea of paying a CEO so much more, kind of hundreds of times more, what someone else in the organization is paid, it takes that view that this is a kind of a rock star, godlike figure who makes or breaks the organization. It, well, I mean does it? I mean, well, probably do, some of them do break the organisation. And no doubt some of them are, they do make the organisation but there is so much more to the organisation than that. And it's, if you take the idea that of, kind of servant leadership, where actually it's about getting other people to do their best, where it then shifts the emphasis down of, well, what's actually providing that, what's providing the profits in the organisation? Well, is it the CEO? Or is it the people further down who actually... Doing what the organization does.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think these are yeah really important questions that I've just got in my ear now. One of our previous guest, uh, Tom Vanderloop, who talks a lot right. about oh we shouldn't we shouldn't focus so much on leadership. Really, it's about this, the operating system of the organization yeah. that we should really be focused on. This, these <clears throat> systems of how we manage that are most important, and that in itself guards against mm. even the issue of having rogue leadership. But it takes leaders to create and maintain and yeah. nurture those those and, systems.
2: And actually, I mean, one of my one of the best books I've read in the past kind of few years, I think, it's one of my favourites, is um, "Reinventing Organizations." Right. Uh, Frederick Lelou's work on so this idea of tiered organization, so you have uh, self managing teams. And uh, that's absolutely brilliant. I think it's. Um, I, I'd love to work kind of in that sort of manner. I think that. Well think,
0: and to some extent you achieved that in your in your bubble of your your yeah we, we tr- highly self managed it sounds like.
2: uh, it it wasn't it wasn't So the times it it was uh, and the times where you that just wouldn't work so kind of when you're when you're an operation, you need to do things quickly, that model doesn't really work um, but back in barracks, actually deciding well what do we need to do training wise or maintenance wise th- yeah absolutely that does work mm-hmm. So I think it's not a model that would apply across the board, but I think it could successfully apply in a lot more places. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some quite big organisations that use it as well. I mean, I think was it Patagonia, uh, Gore-Tex, and people like that. Well, Gore- even even Amazon,
0: although in some ways they are very sort of centralised. You know, it's certainly true from <coughs> the people I've spoke to at Amazon that they do focus on these two pizza teams across mm-hmm. large parts of Amazon. Where they're highly, uh, yeah. Highly autonomous, set their own mission. Yes, well. I, I think
2: different parts of Amazon. I think there are probably people maybe in the warehouse might disagree with that. Well, exactly,
0: exactly. Um, but clearly, it's, it changes. There's different subcultures in Amazon, but certainly yes. parts of it. But any bigger organisation,
2: yeah. have different subcultures here yeah. as well.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: I
2: mean, massively so within the army. The army encourages it. I mean, that's why one of the reasons why they have the regimental system. The, the, the idea that the army is too big an organisation to self-identify with so the regimental system which has been around for hundreds of years where you actually you, you're you in your regiment and that's who you identify with and then you have bring it down to kind of your squad your company or your squadron which is about 180 or so and then your platoon which is about 30, 40 and then your section which is about 8 or 10 yeah. again it's those those teams within teams but it's I guess the the largest bit you really identify with which where the badges you wear and stuff like that, and the, the regimental headdress you wear, and it's all about that regiment. Mm. And it's the regiment that has the history. It's the, the regiment that has the flag with the battle honors that, um, um and the history that you study that goes back the hundreds of years.
0: Yeah, but even interesting there to see that the pattern <coughs> of the section could you could almost say that's mm. a, a two two pizza team. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, or, the, or the agile team as you might say
2: in fact I'm, just, I'm, I'm halfway through a book at the moment um, so it's it's written by the the uh, commanding general at Sandhurst and he's also in charge of um, army leadership and how army, the army teaches leadership at the moment and he's written a book about lessons you can take from Sandhurst and about the training there and he also writes up some personal examples of where things went right and wrong and he uh, gives an example where they were. He was commanding a battle group, so probably about six, seven hundred soldiers on an exercise in Canada. And their first uh, mission there had gone really, really badly wrong, and basically they'd failed. So obviously Morale was massively down in the dumps, and they need to succeed on the the next one to actually they need to get declared okay, your battle group is fit to fight and can go on operations. So it's quite high stakes, and the he basically appealed to their identity uh so it's giving that why 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 do we why are we going to work so hard on this next mission why are we going to pick ourselves up despite this failure and make the next one work and it's he basically appealed to their sense that they you're all fusiliers you're going to fight for each other but also it's you don't want to let your teammate down but also you don't want to let your predecessors down i mean the fusiliers have got a proud history that goes back hundreds of years you don't want to let them down and also, I mean, a lot of families go family member or family member in the same regiment. So, chances are a lot of them would have had dads and uncles and granddads in the same regiment. So, it's that appealing to that, that identity as a regiment.
0: Right. So, yeah, that's very important. In fact, it, it reminds you know, that's one of the you talked about Jurgen <coughs> Apollo at the start of this conversation uh, and his management 3.0. Mm. And, and he talks very very much about identity you know invest in building an identity for your team uh, give yourselves a name give yourselves an emblem yeah right uh, which which i think is a really important part of who we are as humans and yes how we, how we work together we need these symbols to absolutely cohere rather than the you know act- Accounts Payable Department, right? Yeah. Which has been given to you as a badge by somebody.
2: Sort of, you know, Bomb disposal. We had Felix. So in, so Felix the cat came around in uh, Northern Ireland, and he was the kind of mascot that went on badges and stuff. And then, uh, Iraqi, yeah, and you,
0: it was So Felix was a real cat who came. Uh,
2: no, it was uh, I okay. think. I'm, there are various stories about how it came about. I'm just um, imagining a, but, um, a cat sort No, of no, so... it's Keeping um, so up to a bomb with a... Felix, Felix the cat is kind of a... He's a cartoon character, so it's kind of... It's that, the cat with nine lives. Oh, OK. And it's... Um, so the Northern Ireland picture of Felix is a picture of this cartoon cat with kind of a green helmet on. And then they adapted him for Iraq and it was kind of... Um, again, Felix the cat with Arab headdress on. And then they've got the Felix for Afghanistan or you know, Afghan push Pashtun hat. Okay. Um about the identity, I mean I've still the mug I'm drinking from here, it's still and you know, that's the Iraq Felix on there. Okay. And again, it's
1: still that identity <laughs> no, of um, Got it. Okay, it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and um I mean it's interesting where yeah. the there's a bomb disposal charity that looks after the families and the people who worked in, in Bombsburg. it's not just the operators, it's everyone involved. In Bombsburg. Yeah. and that's called the, the Felix Fund, okay. And again, so that raised a lot of money for the people there. But again, it's the Felix, the cat popping up around the place, and
0: yeah, important,
2: yeah. And it's, it's, it's that identity, um, as, as you said there earlier, it's that it, it's having that identity and that linkage with it. Mm. And but one
0: thing that just came up actually, when you were describing. Um, the author of, the, of this book and his, reflecting on his failures. What what was your biggest mistake you made in the army and what did you learn from it?
2: Probably so again I was back in Bajra, I was commanding a weapons intelligence team and the team was made up of people from lots of different units. So I had military police um, army intelligence, RAF intelligence, uh, bomb disposal operators all, all all together in this team. And some of the team would go out on the ground to visit events and often quite gory sites um, and going out and sometimes being shot at. Um, so it, I kept so I kept a careful eye on those who go on the ground for and stress levels and how they're handling it, especially if they see something particularly gruesome. So you, you look at, well, what, what's their, what's the, um, what's the traumatic damage that could be happening mentally and looking after their mental state. I also had team members who never went out on the ground, and they just worked in the day state today. And the, we were based at uh, the contingency operating base of the Cobb, at Airport, so people who never left camp were known, uh, known as cobbits. <laughs> and... Um, so i ne- I never really and the, the cob would get often get rocketed it would get rocketed most days sometimes up to 17 times a day and um, getting hit by rockets of various size so the siren the siren would go um when this uh, is radar detecting and when it detects rockets coming in uh, the siren would sound everyone hit the floor pull your body armor and helmet on and then start waiting for the bangs and then when you then have to like basically lie on the floor till the all clear goes now I mean, for most of it's going on the ground, it's just, yeah, another rocket attack, lying on the ground, when it finishes, get up, carry on business, it just wasn't something we considered as an issue, it's just something, it's just a, de- a, f- a matter of, it's just how you worked, it's just a fact of daily life. I mean, it's sometimes annoying if you were kind of just walking back from the shower or something like that, and you get a siren going, and then you're lying in a ditch, getting all muddy and dusty, having just had a shower, and then you know. Like, Especially if the water restriction's on, because then it's like, well, <laughs> now I'm going to try and wipe all this mud off of uh, a towel. Um, so, But it was mainly as an inconvenience or um, yeah. as anything else. And I didn't really consider that actually some people might find being rocketed several times a day is traumatic, uh, because I guess it wasn't in comparison to what we were doing out on the ground. So I didn't really pay much attention to um, some of my analysts who weren't going out the cobbets. Uh, yeah, the cobbits who weren't leaving the wire, and uh, one of them did develop problems. He, he went home and uh, on R and R, then didn't come back um, because of stress and uh, kind of a traumatic reaction to the to the rocket attacks. I think that's probably my my biggest failure is I think I regard it as a complete failure of leadership. As I should have been paying attention to him. I should have been paying attention to. I shouldn't have been focusing my attention on the people going on the ground. And I should have spotted this before it was a problem. Mm. So, um, so I think I, I, at the time I took it pretty, I took it pretty hard because it was a pretty bloody big failure as a leadership. It's, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have made those assumptions that I did.
0: Yeah, um, and then how has it changed your outlook now?
2: Um, I think one of the biggest things was that different people have different levels of what they're comfortable with stress wise. And you can't assume that just because you're completely happy with a level of stress, it's not going to affect other people. Um, and, it's, and I think that applies not just to traumatic levels, but it also can be to work stress. Um, in fact, I think I came along to something that you ran in London and um, I can't remember, it was one of the speaker on, it was it's about well-being, And one of the speakers was talking about stress curves how that if you've got, you've basically got a, a bell-shaped curve, and if you've got someone with no stress, then they're probably not working particularly efficiently. Whereas if have got too much stress, again, they're not working efficiently. It's it's finding that correct stress, level of stress, to actually where people are their most effective. And everyone's curve is different. And I don't think, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that, and I didn't take that into account. Um, so it wasn't that realization that, if it's a level of stress that I was comfortable with and other people were comfortable with, which I didn't really account for it, that other people might not be comfortable with it. Right. And it actually less than comfortable with it. Actually, it was, it had taken them to breaking point. Yeah. So at the session, we, um, I can't remember who it was, uh, it showed us a stress curve where you got stress along the X axis, then Y axis was how were you performing at your job. And obviously it right at the uh, bottom left corner where you've got no stress. People don't perform perform particularly well because there's no real driver for it. Whereas if you go all the way over to the right-hand side, then, again, performance drops right the way off because there's too much stress. And there's that peak of performance where there's just the right amount of stress, kind of Goldilocks style. And I I think the mistake I made was that I assumed that I didn't know about this curve then, and I didn't really consider it. And... I made the assumption that because I was and most of my team were operating fine at a certain level of stress, that actually that level of stress may be already have dropped off and become traumatic for another person. So it's not that real, not having that realization that different people have different tolerances for stress, for how efficiently they work, and also for what they would find as traumatic and. Um, that they can't carry on working at that level. Yeah. And I think that I so that was quite an extreme example because it was the his mm. the stress that tipped him over was the stress from basically being attacked with rockets multiple times a day every day. Um, obviously that doesn't the over I see is coming over into the, the civilian world is um the stress that you put on someone for um be it deadlines or the amount of work someone has to do or um, the urgency, the urgency of a work, whatever it takes to pulse, put stress on someone. Different people have different levels of stress they're comfortable with, um, and I mean, some people will react well to, we've got to get this done kind of tonight, and it's just kind of really yeah. manic. And people, some people write to it and they love it, and that's when they're kind of the, they really excel at running around their hair on fire and absolutely love it, and that's when they're happiest. Probably can't do it for too long, but it's kind of when the adrenaline is really pumping, that's a great place to be. Whereas other people if kind of you put them under that sort of pressure would you kind of clam up and it's but it's not to say they're not a great worker because it's often that person who could clam up under that kind of pressure, they'll do great work if it's kind of it's more gradual or it could be at the same pace but without that pressure being piled on about the imminent deadline or someone really really jumping up and down and saying we need this now they could be doing it at the same pace, but it's without that that pressure being applied and without the stress levels coming up.
0: Yeah. So that's a really, I think that's a really important point. How do we somehow get clear on what our biases are and mm. find ways to not have the way we enjoy the world or see the world, see yes. the model or the template we use for assessing somebody else's well-being. It's, yeah. It's... it's uh it's a tough one, isn't it? And I'm just reminding me with my partner, I have, or at least my story, is that I have a much higher tolerance for ambiguity yeah. than she does. And so I'll be in a situation where there's not a lot of plan and there's not a lot of details and we're not quite sure what's going to happen and I'll be completely comfortable. She'll be tearing yes. her hair out, right? And, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's me and, and it's very easy to, well, what you know, what's there to worry about? We'll be fine. Yeah. You know? We're not going to die. So yeah. given that, why should we be worried?
2: Right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: And... That's yeah, that that I think you're right. Is that evolution of a leader, isn't it? Is, is, it, is yeah. a big part of that is being able to well empathize and 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 to sort of be vigilant for other people's well
2: being. So, I, I think it's James Salter, I think, puts it quite nicely. He's got a three P's model where he sees leadership in concentric rings, so you've got kind of um personal, private, and public. Uh, so public is obviously when you're leading teams or however many people, it's your kind of public, your, how you lead a, a team. Then you've got your uh, private leadership, which is your kind of one-on-one interaction. So your one-on-one interaction with members of those team, or how you lead as individuals. Then you've got your personal, which is, that's the core, which is just yourself. And that's elements of, kind of your presence as a leader, your expertise. So it's your professional knowledge of what your job is, but also your professional knowledge of leadership. Um, it's your tool, your leadership toolbox. But it's also yourself, and it's, what's critical there is your self-awareness. So it's being aware of where do you sit on, and it's where do you sit? Kind of your comfortable, your comfort with ambiguity, your comfort with stress.
0: It's rocket attacks.
2: Yeah, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. And it's being being self-aware to actually, and also knowing what your strengths are what your weaknesses are. Um, what what styles of leadership work for you? What don't? What should, what do you need to improve? where are you uncomfortable, where are you comfortable? Um, so it, and I, I think I, I quite like that model is kind of having, you, you've got to, for any form of leadership, you've got to have that core of yourself of, you've got to get yourself right before yeah. you can actually start expanding and actually leading others.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. If there if there was a point to end on it, that feels <laughs> like it's the one to end it on, absolutely. Uh, so brilliant, thank you so much. Oh, pleasure, well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And being uh, so willing to answer that last question about failure. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's great that you're prepared to go there. So, Thank you, Ben. It's been yeah. an education. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank, oh, you.
2: thank you very much. For thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers.
0: The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs,
1: head to First Human dot com.